Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of September 11th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll be joined by Mark Leibovich of the New York Times to discuss the NFL's opening weekend showcases in New England and Dallas games starring a pair of players, Tom Brady and Ezekiel Elliott, whose suspensions were botched by Commissioner Roger Goodell. Caitlin Thompson of Racket Magazine and the Main Draw Tennis Podcast will also be here to talk about the rise of the American women at the U.S. Open, where Sloane Stevens beat Madison Keys in the final. And Mike Pesca of The Gist will join us for a round of That's Gamesmanship, Red Sox Stealing Signs with an Apple Watch Edition. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Good to have Fesca back. Yeah. Later. I guess we'll see how good it is. Should be good. That's always good. The National Football League regular season has begun. Colin Kaepernick was a DNP owner's decision. ESPN did a roundup of players who protested the national anthem. And down in Dallas, where team owner Jerry Jones and head coach Jason Garrett brooked no political dissent, the Cowboys stood militarily for the Star Spangled Banner and then were led to victory on Sunday night by a guy who got to play because a federal court granted a preliminary injunction against the league for suspending him for allegedly beating his girlfriend. New York Times Magazine writer Mark Leibovich spent that game schmoozing with the NFL establishment in Dallas three days after schmoozing with it in New England during the NFL season opener. Mark, thank you for coming into the studio. To schmooze with you guys. Good to be here, guys. You're the author of the mega bestseller, This Town, about life here in the nation's capital. Now you're writing a book that will be a sort of this town about the NFL. This league. What linked these two games, as Josh mentioned in the intro to the show, is the NFL's bungling disciplinary procedures, first with Tom Brady and Deflategate, and now with Ezekiel Elliott and his domestic violence suspension. The Patriots lost. The Cowboys won. How much did Roger Goodell's continued mishandling of discipline cast a shadow over these games? Uh, I wouldn't say a shadow. Uh, Well, first of all, I think what links these two games together, and and this is the great journalistic tradition, is I happen to be at both of them. So now it falls upon me and my friends to try to impose a greater meaning and unity on the two. So that's why I'm here and that's why we're all here. Um, No, I mean, what what is interesting about the league today, and this in some ways is the premise of the book, is that – Every sort of celebration of football, every sort of supposedly supposedly like grand stage of football is absolutely embittered by something, some kind of either off-field controversy, some kind of, um, you know, league screw-up, some sort of invective from the fans, some kind of payback to something that is just leavening to, you know, what should be, you know, the high, one of the highest glories of the game. Opening weekend, um, you know, you have the kickoff classic, then you have two marquee teams on Sunday night. 
Um, you know, and um, there's just bitterness everywhere. And I think what you know, and I can talk about how there are different kinds of bitterness in pretty much any number of stadiums today, but especially these two. And at this moment, especially, I thought that that was very telling and very um, you know, emblematic of, of where we are. Well, New England for the last several years, wanting to stick it in Goodell's face has been not even like a secondary issue. It's like the primary interest of a huge number of fans there. It's Bar- like yeah, sine qua non of right. fandom in New England now. Absolutely. And Barstool Sports handed out these um, towels that had Goodell with a clown face. And you would think that that's like, oh, that's just like a fun detail that shows like how people feel. But this was actually like a huge thing that overlaid that entire game. Like if you look at photos of the stadium, Everyone has these towels. <laughs> they were giving out. I mean, Barstool Sports gave out seventy thousand. This is this. Um, I, you know, how would you how would we describe it? It's like a, it's an online the frat kind of boy frat, website. It, yeah, it's it's a little bit. Um, it's it's kind of like the asshole on the other end of the bar. You know, it's like they're they're kind of. I mean, they're a little over the top, but they have a following. They've been very successful in the last couple of years. Smoke show of the day. Yeah, well, no, but they and they they, they have a very organized operation and they were giving out literally 70,000 of these things and you had people wearing t-shirts. There were two of these images of Roger Goodell with a clown nose um, up on billboards, quite literally. Um, this, Near the stadium? Oh, yeah. Yeah, on, on Route 1. I mean, I know – I'm pretty sure that the league and the Patriots had to have some agreement that the Patriots would not in any way show Goodell's likeness up on the scoreboard or on the Jumbotron because they didn't want to promote the bloodlust that already existed. Um but yeah, and then in Dallas, I mean, there was not a lot of over-the-top sort of anti-Gadell stuff. But but you had Zeke Elliott, who was their star running back, who was um, he was cleared to play by a judge after being suspended um, by the league for six games for uh, allegedly um, hitting his girlfriend. Um, the 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 case is is very very cloudy. I mean, and it sounds like the hearings leading up were very very. Um, iffy, and, and there was a lot of procedural stuff. Anyway, long story short, this is another uh, highly controversial disciplinary action by the league that seems to be quite muddled, and it sounds like it's going to go on and play out in the courts over a period of months, if not years. So, um, and then you have you know the AT and T Stadium crowd going totally nuts to have an ale- alleged girlfriend beater who might rightly or wrongly be um, you know accused of this, just going crazy on national television. The NFL has done a terrific job of distracting. Deadspin had a nice uh, essay about this over the weekend of distracting fans from what they're supposed to be promoting, which is football. And it hasn't certainly helped either that the first weekend, as first weekends can, the football wasn't exactly stellar. Um, we also had a post on Slate over the weekend that Nick Green wrote, NFL obscures anthem protests with enormous American flags. Like everything is a distraction from everything else. Right. Like, and, and the quality of play is only highlighted when quarterbacks like Tom Savage in Houston perform as badly as they did on Sunday and Colin Kaepernick's not playing. So everything feeds back into the things that the NFL would not like us to be talking about, and yet they are the very things that the NFL, by its behaviors, have created. Mark, when you're hanging out with these owners, they can't be unaware of how these narratives get shaped. They're not. Uh, they're not unaware of it at all. But what they're also not unaware of is their bottom lines, which to this point has not been disturbed at all. I mean, you have um, – I mean, until perhaps recently. I mean, OK. So that's that's what we're looking at here. I mean, if you look at four years ago, there were some major, major off-field embarrassments that they were dealing with. Ray Rice, OK. Then you had the various gates. You had the you know deflate gate. You had the Adrian Peterson thing. You had – um, just a number – what was the other one? Uh, well, Ray Rice. You know, there was just a number of things like that. They were like now. I mean they were kind of front and center. There was always a peripheral issue. There was an argument to be made two, three years ago that arguably Deflategate was great for football. It was a reality show. It, it filled up the airwaves during the offseason. It was like a completely ridiculous thing. There were no real victims except for Tom Brady who was a very fun victim to kind of laugh at and the Patriots who were a fun outfit to watch fail or watch be disciplined. Uh, and then they prevailed. So it's in, in some ways, it's been part of the reality show. The difference is now, uh, one, you were coming off a year when TV ratings were down. 
um, first weekend of the year, or at least the Thursday. I don't know if we've seen Sunday's numbers, but the Thursday game was significantly down from last year. Yesterday, lousy games. Um, there was a picture that got a lot of circulation of the, the opening. Rams. Well, no, the Rams the game. Rams, too. Yeah, both of them. Just tons of empty seats. Um, and L.A., which is another sort of little sideshow from the last two years, which is about to host, you know, it's second. It's now, now is the host of two teams in a city that arguably couldn't have supported one. Um, you know, you have that as a backdrop. Um, the Kaepernick stuff. Um, you know, my Uber driver on the way to Texas or to uh, AT&T Stadium yesterday, all he wanted to talk about was Kaepernick and how it's his fault. I mean, he was, um, you know, conservative guy, Uber driver, you know, in Dallas. And uh, he said he's not going to watch again. So you have a lot of people who are finding something, I guess. I don't know if it's legit or not, but there, there's a lot of th- reasons that now it seems to be interfering in some way with the actual game or the bottom line. So we don't want to conflate um, Ray Rice and Ezekiel Elliott with Deflategate, but Roger Goodell kind of has made it so that we have to talk about these things and parallel with each other. And the thing that's remarkable and what I'm curious if you talked about with owners is just that they keep fucking this up every single time over and over again. And you'd think that like you'd think if somebody, especially somebody who is extremely highly compensated, just fucks up in the same way over and over again, A, they would either learn not to do it anymore or B, the people who are, you know, in charge of that person who, you know, he serves at the pleasure of these extremely rich individuals, they would find somebody else who wouldn't keep making those mistakes. And not only that, Mark, but he's also surrounded not just by these owners who oversee his contract and his future employment, but the NFL's headquarters are stuffed with extremely highly paid lawyers and public relations consultants and advisors without portfolio. And Jets memorabilia. <laughs> I've been in there. There's yeah. this, I've, I did a census. There's a lot of Jets stuff on the desk. They're just It's disproportionately filled with Jets fans. I don't want to say anything about you know bias against the Patriots or the Giants or any – I just want to put, point that out. No, you're right. Um, but you have to think about who the actors are here, okay? One, 32 owners. Uh, they are not America. They are not the – you know, they do not comprise the 28 percent of respondents in a poll that determine Roger Goodell's approval rating among NFL fans. They do not determine um, what the players in a locker room think of Roger Goodell. They care about how much money they're making. Um, about half of them have seen the values of their franchises double since the time they bought it. Most of it has occurred under Roger Goodell. Um, these are largely sort well, of – Well, let me interrupt though. Yeah. But how is – they think that there's causation there? Yeah. They think that Goodell is the reason for this? Um, I don't think – yes, they do actually. They do? They think he's a good negotiator. They think he, he knows he's a good politician. They think he – understands leverage. He thinks he's done the two most important parts of his job well, which is to negotiate broadcast contracts and to uh, basically, you know, win the con- you know collective bargaining um, agreement against the Players Association, which they did decisively um, eight years ago. And um, yeah, and to them, they just watch their bottom line or have watched their bottom line soar. Now, a lot of these people are in marketing. They are not stupid. They know that to have such a toxic brand as the face of the league, or at least the face of Park Avenue, um, you know, can be you know detrimental to a business. Unfortunately, the business itself has been has sustained itself at, at least to a point, at least in the last year, and that's sort of what they go on. The other thing is, Roger Goodell is the son of a U.S. senator. If you watch him, I mean, he's a very awkward kind of stiff guy when he's at a podium. Uh, he's terrified of saying the wrong thing now. He has lost, I think, a lot of the swagger he had coming in. But if you watch him around owners, if you watch him around team officials, if you watch him around the people he has to schmooze, you know, the, the broadcast executive, he is an expert, backslapping, attentive politician who knows his constituents and he he just knows how to talk to these people. He has a call sheet um, or to make sure he calls every one of the 32 owners or 33 owners um, at least once a week or at least once a month. Um, he just, I mean, he knows how to handle what are some very, very needy, insecure billionaires. Do you get a sense in hanging around the owners and hanging around Goodell for that matter that 
there is concern, not just about the disciplinary stuff that we've mentioned, but the overall perception of the NFL going forward regarding head injuries, particularly, and the public impression or, or of, of what the sport will be in five years or 10 years or 20 years. Yes. Because that's part of his I, job, too. No, it is absolutely part of his job. I would say yes, but I would also put that yes um, probably fourth or maybe third or fourth that somewhere down the list of the things they worry about. Number one, how much money are they making? Number two, or number one A, is their team winning? Number three, um, is there is the owner that they hate who happens to be in their division, is are, are they suffering? I mean, and then number four, oh yeah, the overall brand of the league. But I mean, Robert Kraft, I'm, I'm almost certain, cares more about the brand of the New England Patriots than he does the brand of the NFL. Um, John Mara, Jerry Jones care more about the brand. I mean, you know, they 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 are league. They're considered very influential owners. Jerry Jones was in the Hall of Fame. Um, they, I, I'm almost certain care more about the brand that is the New York Giants and the Dallas Cowboys. Do you think they're whistling past the graveyard though? Yes, I also think a lot of them are really, really old. <laughs> I think a lot of them. Um, I, I think the nature of capitalism. I think the nature of Football, I think the nature of, of the NFL is is just very, very short-term thinking. And, and Eric Winston, uh, who is the president of the NFL Players Association, is someone I've talked to you know, a fair amount for this book. Um, just released, offensive lineman. Offensive lineman for um, a number of teams, sort of a journeyman. He was just released by the Bengals um, about a week ago. Um, I actually haven't, I don't, haven't seen if he's been picked up yet. I tend to doubt it, but I think he'll probably go to work full-time for the Players Association. Uh, he got pretty widely criticized about two, three weeks ago because he's become increasingly outspoken. Um, and he was asked about the league in 20 years. And he said, you know, I could give a damn about the league in 20 years, which was, you know, maybe a little bit tone deaf. Um, and he was criticized. But, but, but the fact is the players whose, you know, long-term health, very short-term careers, you know, NFL, not for long, is um, – is just, I mean, that that's their their concerns are are basically all sort of short term. I mean, I think the long term health of the league and the legacy of youth football and having the the sort of feeder you know leagues coming in or you know Pop Warner you know and and high school players that that's more it seems just much more abstract than it is um, real to them. Yeah, that's definitely the commissioner's job, right? Is to focus on that stuff while the owners are pursuing their own selfish interests. And I forget who made this point, forgive me, because it was, I think, a really smart one, is that Paul Tagliabue, who is a lawyer and um, by all, you know, reputation, a quite good one, um, you know, during his tenure, the NFL did not take all of this, like, disciplinary stuff on itself. And then in the Goodell era, perhaps it was a Pyrrhic victory when they, um, in collective bargaining, got all of this enormous amount of power to discipline players for on-field and particularly off-field stuff. And, you know, when you think about, oh, they really won that collective bargaining agreement, is that a case where somebody who was smarter about legal stuff could have known, like, maybe it minimizes my risk to not be dealing with all the stuff in-house? I think it's more of a philosophical thing, but yes. I mean, I think Paul Tagliabue had a motto, um, which was interesting coming from a lawyer who is, you would think his perspective would be combative, litigious. His motto, at least vis-a-vis -vis the league, was all's well that ends, meaning if you can just settle something, if you can figure out how to do this without it becoming a major shitstorm, um, you know, it's probably better than just taking the pound of flesh out of the Players Association, taking the pound of flesh out of... You know, who, whoever – you know, he, he was learned was deflating a football by one-tenth of a, you know, PSI, um, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, so he did not relish at all having these fights. And Goodell came in and his sort of a – his imprint was the new sheriff is in town, right? I mean, I'm the disciplined guy. I'm going to, you know, suspend uh, Chris Henry of the Bengals and um, Pac-Man Jones then of the Titans for long periods of time. And I'm going to like, you know – 
you know, I guess I, I don't know if he suspended Michael Vick before he went to jail. I don't, I don't remember the order of those things. But he was known for like being the new sheriff and he was on the cover of Time magazine. And, you know, in the era where he started, which was the mid-aughts, um, I guess NFL fans felt that there was a need for some disciplinarian. And, and he was extremely effective, extremely popular, more popular uh, for the first five years. And then it all sort of went south, um, sort of beginning with Bounty Gate, which was the, you know, everyone, uh, is the scandal in, in New Orleans where, yeah. So, uh, which, interestingly, Paul Tagliabu overturned a lot of the um, punishments against the players because that was appealed and um, Tagliabu and, and Goodell haven't been close since. Mark Leibovich is a writer for the New York Times Magazine. He's working on a book about the NFL. It does not have a title yet, so feel free to email us suggestions. Please do. Yeah. Mark, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Josh. Great to be here, Stefan. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to the U.S. Open, heads up that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, our tennis pal, Caitlin Thompson, will tell us about her recent experiment with performance-enhancing drugs, as told in a deadspin post headlined, I doped like Maria Sharapova, and it was actually pretty great. If you want to hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year or $5 a month. If you do, you can get a Slate tote bag, plus bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. On April 18th, Sloan Stevens posted a video on Twitter with the caption, day one walking, excited, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Stevens, who'd had surgery on her left foot in January, took her first steps three months after that surgery. Then at the end of April, she was hitting four hands while sitting on a chair. Then she was running on an anti-gravity treadmill, then made her debut at Wimbledon, losing in the first round, then lost again in the first round here in D.C. as the number 957 player in the world. Now a little bit more than a month after that, the 24-year-old won her first Grand Slam title beating Madison Keys 6-3, 6-love in the final of the U.S. Open on Saturday to move up to number 17 in the rankings and nab a winner's check of $3.7 million. Let's listen to a little snippet of her post-match press conference. I know this is kind of fresh, but having done this once, does it give you a hunger to win another slam, to do this again, feel this feeling again? Of course, girl. Did you see that check that that lady handed me? <laughs> like... Yes. Man, if that doesn't make you want to play tennis, I don't know what will. Man. So, yes, definitely. I'm feeling extremely motivated to play tennis right about now. Joining us is Caitlin Thompson. She is the publisher and co-founder of the Print Tennis Quarterly Racket and one of the hosts of the podcast, The Main Draw. What's up, Caitlin? What's up? Thanks for having me. Very motivated to play tennis on this uh, on this beautiful Monday. Uh, even if she hadn't been coming off a broken foot, Sloane Stevens would not have been anyone's pick to win a Grand Slam title. She hadn't been past the fourth round in a major since 2013. Um, but with Serena Williams out on maternity leave, the field is wide open in women's tennis right now. And in New York, four Americans took advantage with Stevens, Keys, Coco Vandeweghe, and Serena's sister, Venus, who's had a pretty damn good year all making the semifinals. But before we get to those other women, what is your take on how Sloan was able to win this tournament? Okay, so I'm going to say that, yes, nobody maybe would have predicted that she would have been in this Grand Slam final. As you note, she hasn't gone very deep, um, certainly in any big majors uh, since 2013, although she did win a title in Charleston, I think a year or two ago. So she's had some success, but the thing with Sloan is she's just really up and down. She's really streaky. She shocked everyone on the scene, beating Serena Williams very handily in a quarterfinal match at the Australian Open, which kind of announced her arrival. Uh, Serena famously kind of got a little salty about it and at one point later on told people that she felt like she had made Sloan. Um, she you know, tweeted but it. She, I made she, you. 
I made you. It's awesome. Uh, but then, you know, she didn't really back it up with too many other deep runs like that. She kind of had some issues where people were questioning her commitment. You know, this is a classic case of a player who's got just bountiful amounts of athleticism and ability, but maybe not the nose to the grindstone sort of attitude that you, that you need to be able to consistently get results in and out. So I don't think it was uh, a surprise that she went deep and got a grand slam. I think a lot of people were expecting that to happen, just not at all right now. It's a little bit the difference between a teenager and a 24-year-old too, isn't it, Caitlin? I mean, she was very young. She had this bout of success beating Serena, which nobody expected, and the attention that came with it, which led to some very candid comments that the that the tennis um, establishment didn't seem to like. She was young. She's buoyant. She's enthusiastic. She talked about her gynecologist in an interview <laughs> with Elle magazine, um, and she made sort of other intemperate comments. And then as you said, she really hasn't backed it up in the last four years. I mean, with the injuries last year, she hadn't won a match in over a year. That's crazy. Oh, it's crazy. And I think even during this uh, comeback that she's experienced where she's rocketed from the 900s to, you know, Josh, 17, um, you know, she or in the early parts in the early weeks. She was saying, well, eventually I'll beat somebody because she wasn't beating anybody, um, you know, and then to have her do two weeks in a row of a Grand Slam caliber performance that, that we saw this past fortnight, like, it, it, it's not unbelievable that it happened at some point, like I said, but I think it's unbelievable that it happened now, especially as you know, like, you know, she has been in everyone's eyes, kind of a tempestuous teen and then early 20 year old. And I think having had this huge break, having had to reckon with the idea that maybe this was going to be taken away from her because, you know, she's in a boot hitting forehands and maybe not being able to certainly walk, much less run. Uh, I think it really does give you a very quick perspective on what you actually want to be accomplishing with life and with the the talent you have. And I think, you know, in my own experience playing tennis for my whole life, getting only as far as D1, you know, it's not necessarily the talented players who really make it. And I think that that's probably true in every sport where just because you're good at something doesn't mean it's what you love to do and want to work on every day, day in and day out. And I think having, you know, the, the rug pulled out from under you and having an injury that takes you away, that makes a decision for you kind of makes you reevaluate. And I think that that is exactly what has happened. And if you parachuted in right now into Sloan Stevens' career and you watched her at the Open, and then you watched her press conferences, and you watched her at the award ceremony, I really don't see how you can't love this person. I mean, she is funny. She is um, self-deprecating. Um, her emotional her reactions were terrific. Loves her oh, yeah. mom. She's her got mom a f- is cool. She's got she's got a really cool mom who was a terrific athlete and a very compelling and sad backstory involving her father who played in the NFL and died tragically in a car accident. Oh yeah, she's the package total. And I think for me, you know, the two things that I feel like are really, really exemplary are not only the fact that she has this sort of non-corporate demeanor, which I think tennis in particular in the last couple of years has gotten used to, especially on the men's side, with a lot of sort of pro forma press conferences, yep. everyone falling over themselves to be gracious about their opponents, which, yeah, sure, I like decorum and I like sportsmanship, but at the same time, there's not a lot of candid commentary that you get directly from an athlete the way that Sloan has proven herself being, you know, able and willing to provide. And then the other thing is, I think the real ancillary for Sloan on the men's side is Nadal. And the reason people really like Nadal is he is a bludgeoning fighter. His game might not be picture textbook perfect the way that Ralph, uh, the way that Roger Federer's is, but he can turn defense into offense very quickly. And I think what we saw this past weekend in the women's final was an exact replication of some of the more decisive Nadal versus Federer wins, where one person has beautiful strokes that are dominated on a sort of aggressive tactic, but no necessarily uh, functioning plan B, whereas uh, Sloan just took advantage of the fact that she could stay in points, hang in, create some interesting um, opportunities for herself, and then when the moment was right, strike with offense. So it's really fascinating that you mentioned Nadal, because in the Elle magazine story where she was compared to Cher Horowitz from Clueless and talked about her gynecologist. There was a quote from Mary Carrillo talking about how, you know, she doesn't, she looks like she's not trying on the court. Um, This is circa 2014, um, talking about a match that she lost to Caroline Wozniacki and saying, 
Is that just a costume of casualness that she shows out here? Is she trying to act cool? And Carrillo said explicitly that she needed to be more like Rafael Nadal, a guy who tries hard on every point and, you know, you can see his blood and sweat and tears out there. And so I totally buy the idea, um, you know, the premise that you're talking about, Caitlin, that when it looked like the sport might be taken away from her, she recommitted um, and she took a totally different attitude. But as far as like her presentation on the court, you can see a little bit of ex post facto reasoning where now when she has that cool demeanor on the court, everybody talks about, oh, she's got this like icy stare and she's never it's composure. <laughs> she never, you know, gets too high or too mm-hmm. low. So I think some of the narrative around her changed attitude, I'm not sure like what percentage of it is, but some of it is certainly has to be phony and just based on trying to explain these amazing results. I think the the sort of convenient, you know, retroactive narrative of her calmness now meaning composure instead of a lack of attitude is yeah, probably totally right. And I think famously, John McEnroe was always talking about, it's his nerves. He's cool as a cucumber. I, I don't know. Some of them just have blank faces and some of them don't. Yeah, but I, yeah. what I look to as being actual evidence of the fact that Sloan cares more and the fact that she's, uh, she's more positive, she's more engaged, like the fact that she was a commentator, actually speaking of commentary, during her uh, her time off. And you saw, again, this past U.S. Open, Bethany Maddox-Sands, who also had a horrific injury at Wimbledon, stayed engaged with the game, stayed on TV commentating, talking to other players. I think that was really healthy for both of them. And I think it kept Sloan kind of her heart in the in the game in a way that was probably now beneficial. And I think also her coach. People talk a lot about Kamal Murray, who's um, a very well-known coach out of Chicago. He's not, he like takes no nothing from nobody. Like he is not here to mess around. And basically he told Sloan at the beginning of their relationship, like you're either going to get you're either going to get it every day and give me your best effort and the results are going to follow or they're not, but I expect excellence in terms of what you give um, or I'm out. And I think having a coach like that, whereas Sloan had sort of a a coterie, uh, a rotating cast of characters doing the coaching before does actually make a difference. So Madison Keys, um, also an amazing run, a little bit younger than Sloan. um, And I thought she was going to win the final um, based off her form just mm. ripping through Coco Vandeweghe oh, in the yeah, semis. Probably maybe the best performance of anybody in the entire tournament. Until the final. Um, and she just didn't play well at all. And we can put on our bad tennis commentator hat and, and try to explain <laughs> why. But um, Madison Keys is an example of a player like uh, Serena Williams, where if she is playing her best, nobody's going to beat her. And so that's why it was a little bit disappointing to see the final. You would have liked to see Sloan at least try and just see what her counterpunching and her being at the top of her particular game style, as you mentioned, Caitlin, how that would have matched up with a woman who, like, when she's at her best is one of the best, if not the best offensive right, players in tennis. As a, as a non-tennis expert among the three of us here, um, watching the final, it seemed like Sloan just had to return. She didn't get to the stage that she had to get to against Venus Williams in the third set where she had to respond and aggressively win points. She allowed Madison to make errors. I think, so here's where, I think both of you are being very optimistic about Madison Keys in terms of her highest capabilities and in terms of what uh, she actually is performing uh, on a week in and week out basis. And I think it's not an accident. It's neither an accident that she made a grand slam final, nor is it an accident that she lost one in a pretty blowout fashion. And I'll tell you why. And actually I predicted that Sloan would win not to gloat because predictions are, you know, who knows, but I think in the case of Madison keys, we've seen where she, if she can be in that offensive mode and hit, hitting the gas pedal and somebody is going power to power with her, her technique, her, uh, her the way that her game is built in terms of strategy is superior. I mean, she's just got such a good textbook A game. But famously, and the reason Madison Gaze has not yet made a final, and the reason she hasn't scored a ton of big wins against a counterpuncher like Car- Caroline Wozniacki, for example, or Simona Halep, is because when somebody isn't playing a power game, when they're retrieving, when they're making her put a ton of balls in the court, and even when we saw... Uh, Madison Keys in big trouble against a fellow big hitter who has a bit more of a variety game, um, like Naomi Osaka last year at the U.S. Open. 
Madison Keys pulled out that match, but she shouldn't have. Um, and I think that the the point that I'm making here is that Madison Keys still hasn't developed a B game. And I think that actually has a lot to do with the way that she's coached. I think people look at her game and they see beautiful flowing strokes, textbook, the way that I would teach my kid to play, um, certainly. But there isn't a whole lot of tactical um sort of depth to what she's doing. So if that big forehand on the line doesn't work, she's going to keep trying to hit that big forehand on the line until it does work. Well, guess what? It's never going to work against Sloan if Sloan is moving well and can anticipate and actually make Madison Keys move out of her comfort position. So actually what you saw that maybe appeared to be a, a failure on Madison Keys' part to bring her A game was actually a very, very tactical victory on the part of Sloan that basically took Madison Keys' A game off the table. I'm convinced. Caitlin Thompson is the publisher and co-founder of the Print Tennis Quarterly Racket, and she's one of the hosts of the podcast, The Main Draw. Thank you, Caitlin. You're welcome. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Last week, Michael S. Schmidt of The New York Times reported that investigators for Major League Baseball had found that the Boston Red Sox had contrived to steal signs by deploying an Apple Watch in the dugout, The Sox had been turned into the commissioner's office by the Yankees, whose general manager Brian Cashman had submitted video evidence documenting Boston's nefarious behavior. The sign-stealing scheme was a bit convoluted, but basically Red Sox personnel back in the clubhouse would watch the opposing catcher on television and try to decode the signals he was giving to the pitcher. Once they cracked that code, however many fingers for a fastball, however many for a curveball, The people in the video room would tell a trainer sitting in the dugout via the Apple Watch, and the trainer would then tell players on the bench who would then relay that information to a Red Sox runner on second base, who would then look at the catcher's signals, crack the code, and per the times, alert the batter with a subtle gesture. Because baseball is stuck in the 19th century, stealing signs is not illegal, but using an electronic device in the dugout for any purpose whatsoever, that is illegal. Put away the zunes, people. Commissioner Rob Manfred has not yet decreed what the Red Sox punishment will be, but to help us puzzle through this scenario, we're excited to welcome in the host of The Gist and America's favorite game show, That's Gamesmanship, Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. Hello. Gamesmanship or cheating? (laughs) Well, I think the title of the segment says it all. Uh, I I suppose it's a misdemeanor. I, I think it's gamesmanship. I think it's the 2017 version of gamesmanship. Forget the Apple Watch. This all could have been done with uh, technology from 30 years ago or just, you know, tin cans and uh, string. Um, But there is the rule, I think, going back to 1961, that you could do whatever you want, steal signs, except use an electronic device. So wait, maybe the steel cans doesn't screw up things. Uh, And the other big thing about why I consider it gamesmanship and not cheating. Maybe it is low-level misdemeanor cheating, but basically I think the commissioner was right to say, all right, just cut it out rather than, you know, uh, take away draft picks or issue a a fine. He could still Uh, do that. Yeah. He hasn't announced it yet. He could still do that. He shouldn't take it too seriously. The, I think the deciding factor is that it doesn't seem to help in any way. Maybe it gives you a psychological advantage, but they've done Plenty of studies with uh, a runner on second versus a runner not on second and how that affects the home team's batting average. You can't really look at on-base percentage because, you know, sometimes they walk a guy with Mm -hmm. first base open. And uh, it doesn't. It just doesn't seem to affect slugging or batting average or anything measurable. And I also found it interesting that Rob Nyer went back to the uh, record of the New York Giants famously stealing signs pre the shot heard around the world. And it didn't even help them. You know, a lot of the guys didn't want the signals. It certainly screws up with your uh, preparation. So because it doesn't really help, I don't think that the Red Sox should get so hurt. Cheating. Cheating, I say. This is blatant cheating. They were trying to determine the signs by not using natural means. Oh, come on. Their brains and their eyeballs. You don't actually b- believe that, do you? No, not entirely, but I'm going to argue it. Um, 
on, you can't use other devices. That is cheating. That's stupid. This is Belichick level film the uh, the other sideline. This is this is not where we want to be. We don't want to be like looking at video and relaying to the dugout. It just seems stupid more than anything. And I think the point you make, Mike, is that it just seems all implausible to me too that you could do all of this quickly enough in order to end the situationally. You know, this is going to be fairly rare, man on second with an opportunity to do this and to be prepared to do it. But regardless of that, it is, this is like, this is cheating. This feels against the sort of I can tell because your cheating. voice is going up several but octaves. I'm lying. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't actually believe it. I don't believe it entirely, but I do <laughs> think that, I mean, maybe I just believe it because it's the Red Sox that got caught doing this absurd Apple Watch thing that makes me feel like they should be punished in some way. And it also does bring me great joy to watch the Boston media fall over itself trying to defend the reputation of the city and lump it in with all the other cheating that Boston has done. Well, it, do, it does seem like the Red Sox were clearly trying to muddy the waters by then like making counter accusations against yeah, the yeah, Yankees. Yeah, 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 yeah. They had a dedicated video feed on the Yes Network. I heard actually, Mike, that the entire reason that the Yes Network came into existence was to create this video Mm -hmm. feed so that the Yankees could cheat and look at uh, Red Sox coach Gary DeSarcina. The thing that I find so confusing and I defy either of you to explain to me is we we understand why they were watching in the clubhouse on television because there are no televisions in the dugout. You need to have somebody in the clubhouse and they have the center field camera. You're not allowed to have an iPad in the dugout. You can look at the, the signals. Obviously, that makes sense. The, the way to make this legal, you don't even need to use the, the Pesca tin can approach. Just have the person who is watching in the clubhouse literally walk from the dugout or literally walk from the clubhouse into the dugout and just tell the person what you saw. There's no rule against that. Or just have the person uh, in the dugout go to the bathroom, quote unquote, and just go talk to the person who's sitting in the clubhouse. So you're saying that the Rag Sox were dumb, Yeah, not it's incredibly nefarious. dumb. It's incredibly dumb. Well, if they if they thought they'd get caught, they could have someone jog to the bench. Yes, exactly. I, I, I understand that it's 2017 and I'm over here and you're over there 200 <laughs> yards away. And so my inclination is, uh, can I walk to you or do I text you? So they just texted to him. They didn't think it was a big deal. It's a concession to our modern communication styles. All right. So in the spirit of America's favorite game show, that's gamesmanship, um, the Washington Post did a very good history. We also had some of this in a slate piece by Stephen Goldman of examples from the past of sign Mm. stealing. And so we're going to go through these and decide cheating or gamesmanship. Let me take you back to 1876. Paul Dixon Mm. in his book, The Hidden Language of Baseball, is our source for this one. The Hartford Dark Blues, Mike. The Hartford Dark Blues... (laughs) Built a shack atop a telegraph pole that overlooked the stadium. Again, jobs program. Uh, And from there, we're able to tip off their players to signs. Building a shack atop a telegraph pole. Cheating or gamesmanship? I would say, let me interrupt, interject, and say that all that seems to me to be was cultural anticipation of the pole sitting phenomenon of the 1950s. So kudos. Wasn't pole sitting in like the roaring 20s? Could have been in the 20s, <laughs> 50s, 20s, whenever it was. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Kudos to the blue. What were they called? The dark blues. The dark blues. Shack, <laughs> shack atop a telegraph pole, cheating or games and shit. What year? What year? 1876. 1876. March 7th, 1876, Alexander Graham Bell's patent for the telephone Mm. is granted. So they were on (laughs) this. How is there a telephone pole there? (laughs) Weeks after Alexander... (laughs) Telegraph pole. Telegraph pole. Telegraph pole. Oh, okay. Well, it's telegraph pole. Then how could they be uh, signaling? They'd have to go dot, dot, dash, dash for a fastball, dash, dash, (laughs) dot, dot, dot for a hanging curve. I think it's totally gamesmanship. It's uh, in keeping with the spirit of the age. Here's another one, Stefan, Mm -hmm. also from Dixon's book uh, via the Washington Post. Early reports of players shifting tobacco wads from one side of their mouth to another to convey a sign. (laughs) <laughs> uh, 
players gamesmanship. Don't actually, players don't also, actually like to chew tobacco. They just do it because of uh, gamesmanship. Maybe that. Well, has anyone investigated whether the reason players chew tobacco is because they were trying to steal signs originally? That could be. Yeah. Think of all the cancer that could have been Game, avoided. Gamesmanship turned public health crisis. Yeah. If you get the cancer on the left side of your mouth, he's looking fastball. Yeah. On the right side of your mouth, change All it. right, so then there's one from 1898. Um, Phillies player positioned himself behind a whiskey ad and <laughs> used binoculars to steal the sign. And that's like still going on to, yeah. to this day. Then once he deduced the sign he would open and close a letter O in the whiskey ad to convey information. Now, monkeying with a whiskey ad, Mike. Cheating or gamesmanship? Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's gamesmanship in terms of baseball, but cheating in terms of uh, whiskey sales. Because you might be thinking you're getting an Oban whiskey, but you're really getting an Abon <laughs> whiskey, which is a lesser brand of whiskey. Did you hear about the one, um, this was written about in the Slate piece, where the Phillies again, uh, yep. third, third base coach's box. You mentioned this on the gist. Um, third base yep. coach's box, they had a telegraph wire running under the ground, discovered when a player from the Reds tripped over the wire rounding third base. Oh, see, this is not the account I had. The account I had said that the uh, Red Stockings shortstop and Captain Tommy Duncan, I Tommy believe, Corcoran. I could be getting that name wrong. Yeah, Corcoran. He suspected what was going on as Pierce Childs. Pierce, what's the use, Childs? <laughs> a uh, nickname I only saw referenced in a Saber uh, write-up of it, not on baseball reference. Anyway, when uh, Tommy Corcoran began scratching at the third base ground like a deranged chicken, <laughs> the phrase goes, which made me think, well, would a normal chicken scratch any less Gradually. So yes, and then there were wires underneath. This seems like cheating. The, because Especially because an Apple Watch is to 2017, I think, in the spirit of the times, yeah. whereas wires underneath the ground in 1899, this to me is uh, a, an advancement that would be a shock to the system, almost literally, as Pierce, what's the use, Childs, would often stand inside a standing pile of water or a puddle of water on the third baseline. This seems, this seems terrible. So you think electrocuting the opposing batter is cheating? What's the use, I say? But yes, I, I consider this cheating. The Giants, um, you talked about the shot heard around the world, the 51 season. Um, they used a telescope that was in the manager, Leo DeRocher's office, and then they would combine the telescope with a buzzer system. Mm-hmm. I think we've all agreed that that's cheating. That's cheating. so the telescope is okay. You could telescope is fine, but the buzzer system is not okay. It's the signaling part. I don't the understand why you would school. make why the telescope would be okay, but the signaling would not be okay. Would it be okay if the person used the telescope and then ran? Yes, because <laughs> it requires more or used effort. A, used a zip line? Yeah. Isn't that like saying, would it be okay if the telescope didn't have any telescopic properties, but he was just looking and also standing on second? And, you know, yes, if the circumstances were changed, it might be different. All right. Um, let's bring it up to modern times. Buster Olney had a, a post for ESPN mentioning that there's been a lot of discussions of technological fixes because there's something inherently stealable about catcher signs, right? Like, the pitcher is looking into the catcher. You have to, you know, make a signal with your hands. There's going to be a way to, you know, for for somebody to see that. So, what are some alternatives? Only mentions some kind of earpiece, as quarterbacks and defensive captains have in the NFL. He says seems impractical for Major League Baseball because usually the signs don't come from the sideline. He also mentions, again, this is more of like a college thing where the pitches are called from the bench, where you have like a quarterback style forearm, mm -hmm. like wristband where they- Velcro with the cover, yeah. Yeah, with so you have like an Enigma kind of deciphering kind of machine on the mound where you uh, get the signal and then like look and, and see what the code is. And this last one, this is the most exciting one for me, uh, only writes- there would seem to be an opportunity for some inventor to come up with a way for the catcher and pitcher to communicate, maybe by outfitting their gloves in a way that a catcher could send wireless signals 
through his gloved hand, a press of an index finger, one for fastball, electronically setting off a vibration in the glove hand of the pitcher. Or why not just a little little, little LED, some sort of indicator on the glove? I mean, I guess it could break if a line drive were hit hard enough. It would have to be something you, that was you, a vibration because— It couldn't be visible? Because yeah, it then you be could steal it by with, with your binoculars exactly. yeah, and your telegraph wires. Yeah. yeah. Are you familiar with the Nintendo Power Glove <laughs> that was available for a time? There were a lot of buttons on it. Now, I think, I mean, why not go to the college football idea and hold up yes. the placards <laughs> with uh, iconography suggest. and yeah. codes? <laughs> like have Morgana on one, uh, Abner Doubleday, a vat of pine tar, and some uh, a marmoset. And that would mean hanging right. curve. Well, why would you ever throw the hanging curve? Um, I think I think that uh, Joe Girardi actually said we need to go because, you know, he's advanced and he likes scouting reports. Uh, he says we need to go to the headsets. And there is one downside to all of this. Um, why we maybe why there could be some argument for reform it's guarding against sign stealing really does prolong the game yeah. i mean when verlander there was he went through a period when he thought that he was tipping his pitches and my god the catcher would come out and confer with him all the time and these games were being pushed it's one of the factors to make baseball less boring that you have to go um through less subterfuge to try to scramble your signals the vibrating glove the thing that would be so awesome about that is that the way that teams go about trying to decipher signals by like looking at them or by, you know, TV or telescopes and stuff, that's all like kind of, you know, passe at this point. It's like we've seen it all. But the like innovations that would be required to steal signals that were transmitted by vibrations, like the hiring of physicists and like looking at the disturbances in the fields around Mm -hmm. the players, that would just allow for so uh, much you know, again, like full em- full employment yeah. for like baseball physicists. Right. Which leads to the, 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 isn't the real answer here. Just let people do whatever the hell they want using whatever means they can. <laughs> Para- periscope coming out of the dugout. Anything. Just if you want to try to steal signs, go for it. There's no evidence that it works. There's no evidence that it helps. Knock yourselves out, everybody. That's Apple, what, wa- is, Apple watches the, for the, the entire 40-man roster. This is the answer. You just do everything and have seven of them be dummies. So you have the catcher sending signs. You have some dude with semaphore. <laughs> you got the blinking light thing. You got the telegraph in the outfield. You got the you got the big iconography signs. Just do it all. Have it be a have it be a cryptologist's daydream. Love how Stefan just completely without any like warning or explanation any. just like totally changed Permissive. changed his permission yeah, his absolutely. position from the beginning of the podcast. Yep. My last thought is. Why do catchers and pitchers even need to, why do catchers need to know what pitch is coming? Just like catch whatever the the guy throws. Well, because the ball's coming at 99 miles an hour. And Just it's catch helpful. what the guy throws. It's helpful to know if it's going to break three feet. This is all about catchers just being. So you think the problem is that the catcher isn't. A good enough athlete at this point. Yeah, the catcher just doesn't need these allowances. Just like catch the ball, see ball, catch ball. We don't. We wouldn't need any signals. Mm-hmm. That would be an advantage if there was a catcher whose reflexes or were just so amazing that there didn't need to be any signaling. Or his glove was so big. There's the other. There's the other solution. Widen the catcher's glove. All right. We've we've presented every possible option and then some. Mike Pesca, host of That's Gamesmanship and the Daily Podcast, The Gist. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for Afterballs, and on the LSU-Chattanooga game on SEC Network on Saturday night, there was a very key revelation about the Tigers' season, and that is the defensive lineman Edwin Alexander's nickname is Rougarou. Rougarou? Do you know about the Rougarou, Stefan? No. A Rougarou is a mythical creature said to roam the Louisiana swamps. It has a human body. 
and the head of a wolf and excellent pass rushing techniques. The Rougarou Wikipedia entry also notes that legend has it that the blood-sucking creature, quote, will hunt down and kill Catholics who do not follow the rules of Lent. Whoa. I didn't know Catholicism was that strict. So LSU's opponents need to hide those Catholics who have not followed the rules of Lent. Good thing, when, uh, good thing that the football season isn't during Lent. <laughs> I'm learning, learning new things every day. Um, also, another Rougarou fact, when the then New Orleans Hornets were preparing to change their name, the five nicknames they trademarked in preparation were the Mosquitoes, the Swamp Dogs, the Bull Sharks, the Pelicans, and the Rougarou. Singular? Singular. Singular. Yep. I like that. Mosquitoes or Rougarou is what I would have gone with. Stefan, what is your Rougarou? Ty Montgomery of the Green Bay Packers is on my fantasy team this year, Josh. I didn't actually draft him because I'm an idiot and forgot about the draft and didn't get online until the sixth round. So my first five picks were auto-drafted by ESPN for me. And fuck auto-draft for taking Bilal Powell in like the third round. Anyway, I honestly didn't know much about Ty Montgomery, except that he used to be a receiver and he was converted to running back last year and wore number 88. Running backs, of course, aren't supposed to wear number 88 because the NFL has very strict rules about numbers. The current numbering system was implemented in 1973. Quarterbacks, punters, and kickers have to wear 1 to 19, running backs 20 to 49, etc. There have been a couple of modifications, like allowing wideouts to wear 10 to 19, and a couple of years ago, letting linebackers wear numbers in the 40s. So what about Ty Montgomery? Well, the Packers switched him from receiver to running back in the middle of last season. At the end of the year, Packers head coach Mike McCarthy announced he's a running back, so he wants to change his number, and that's the way we're going. Montgomery actually wanted to keep 88, so he researched the NFL rules himself and discovered a loophole. Eligible pass receivers can keep their number if they switch to another eligible pass receiving position as long as they've played a full season at the old position. In March, Montgomery tweeted two images, one of the rule, Article 2, Rule 5, Section 4, Article 3, Item 3, and a football card of Rod Bernstein, who played for the Chargers in the late 80s and early 90s. Me and Rod Bernstein have something in common, and it's not number 88. Hashtag keeping it. Bernstein, it turns out. That was going to be hashtag juice. <laughs> Rod Bernstein, not Jewish, I don't think. Hashtag, hashtag juice. Bernstein, it turns out, kept his number 82 after converting from tight end to running back. Montgomery, of course, looks totally weird in the backfield. The jersey makes him look not like a running back. And this is very much like Rod Bernstein. Single-digit pitchers, whom I love so dearly, because they don't look like pitchers either. But I respect Montgomery for standing up to big uniform, and the more I read about him, the more I like the guy. First, huge respect for the fact that he researched the rule himself. Second, I love that he called out some random dude who played before he was born. Rod and, Bernstein. And referred to him as if he were a household name, requiring you to then go do research about Rod Bernstein. And more generally, Ty Montgomery seems like a really good guy. He appears to be a big fan of rising American tennis player Francis Tiafo. During Tiafo's five-set loss to Roger Federer in the first round at the U.S. Open a couple weeks ago, Montgomery tweeted, One of these announcers is clearly rooting for Federer, doesn't believe in Francis, and it's super annoying. Don't downplay Tiafo." Don't downplay him. Wouldn't, wouldn't dream of it. Montgomery is also a fan of the U.S. men's national soccer team. During the team's 2-0 win over Costa Rica in the Gold Cup semifinal back in July, Montgomery tweeted about Josie Altador, Goal! I, why is this football player built like a football player, though? 100 flexed biceps emoji. When Clint Dempsey scored, Montgomery tweeted, Woo, what a free kick. Great goal. Hashtag USA. Finally, and most endearingly, when a club football player from Winnipeg named Dom Slobodian tweeted, <laughs> spending my 20th birthday binge-watching superhero movies and wearing my At Time Montgomery 2 hoodie, Montgomery replied, happy birthday, bro. What we watching? Slobodian answered, thanks, man. Person with folded hands emoji. On a Spider-Man kick since homecoming, so re-watching the Tobey Maguire ones really means a lot for person with 
folded hands emoji. A few weeks later, Slobodian tweeted, hoping to return to Lambeau Field this year. Really need to see at Ty Montgomery 2 live. Also just really need to meet him. Loudly crying face emoji. Hashtag inspiration. So I'm really glad that Ty Montgomery is on my fantasy team. I mean, as long as he doesn't suck. He did have 14 points on Sunday, leaving my team bare naked kickers in good shape heading into Monday night. Josh, what's your rougarou? Stefan? Yes? Do you want to get on the internet? Yes. Well, have I got the service for you. Great. Prodigy. You gotta get this thing. I don't know how I did without it. And I'm doing this, I'm doing this stocks. I never played stocks in my life. You want to know about your bank? Boom, boom, bingo. Bingo. I'm making money. You're making money. With this finger, John. This finger. Yes, it saves me a lot of time. I mean, you can even get the scores before the paper does. While the game's in progress. What's that? Baseball scores? We got it. Prodigy is the online service that connects your computer to news, shopping, sports, and now an encyclopedia. All for only $12.95 per month. All right. Prodigy. Great service. You gotta get this thing. Prodigy. Stores everywhere. You got to get this thing. Boom, boom, bingo. You can get the scores before the papers do. Imagine that. Prodigy was one of the first online services launching in 1988 and reaching 1 million paid accounts in 1993, second only to the immortal CompuServe. Well, those ads were sure to note that Prodigy had baseball scores. They did not mention Prodigy's real killer app, which is the ability to send death threats to star athletes. Here's the Seattle Times from August 20th, 1993. A 14-year-old girl logged onto the Prodigy Computer Network's bulletin board and typed out a death threat against baseball superstar Cal Ripken Jr. It was meant to get a rise out of her boyfriend in New Jersey, who idolizes Ripken, said Joe Race, police chief in Medina, Washington, a suburb of Seattle, where the girl lives. Monday night, police began staking out the address provided by Prodigy. There was nobody home, Race said, so he had to sit on the house for about 16 hours. By 2 p.m. Tuesday, the 14-year-old arrived home with her 28-year-old sister. Her parents were on vacation, and the older sister was in charge, Race explained. The girl admitted she sent the message and was very embarrassed and apologetic, Race said. She lives in a beautiful house and comes from a nice family. The girl received a stern lecture from police, but no criminal charges will be filed. A couple days later, it was reported that the kingdom was going to charge the girl's parents $750, Quote, the extra money it cost to call in two off-duty cops to provide extra protection for the Orioles shortstop two nights last week in Seattle. Now back to our friend Joe Race, the police chief of Medina, Washington. In 2011, Seattle Weekly caught up with Race, who by then was living on the island of Saipan. And though he didn't talk about it directly, you could tell he was still a little bit ticked off about having to sit outside that fancy house for 16 hours. He remembers being badgered to fix tickets and do favors for the rich when he held the sheriff's post from 1990 to 1997. It's a beautiful place with some very wonderful people, he recalled in a recent email from Saipan, where he lives and authors crime fiction books, among other activities. That said, my tenure in Medina was about the most frustrating of my police experience. The department often got requests like, UPS is coming by today. Can you sign for my package? Or I got this ticket in Tacoma. Can you take care of it for me? Medina's finest also responded to complaints about raccoons eating from a dog's dish and Canada geese frolicking in a swimming pool, Race recalls. In fairness, all chiefs are bombarded with silly requests, Race points out, but Medina had an excessive share of, quote, spoiled brats and jerks, he says. Author's crime fiction, you say? Would you like to hear an excerpt? From <laughs> I his... was waiting. Would you like to hear an excerpt from his debut novel? Moving on. From the mean streets of Los Angeles to the sandy beaches of Micronesia. Here we go. A big smashing crunch echoed through the room. The sounds bounced off the walls of the cave. I was suddenly drenched in hot blood. And Garcia fell lifeless across my body. He was heavy and we were face to face. His left eye was open and glazed. I moved from under his body and looked up. I finally got my gun free. Carlos was standing over him with his baseball bat in his right hand. He said, looking at Garcia, Grand Slam, motherfucker. (laughs) Who published that? You know, it just kind of emerged into the world. No no publisher necessary. Movie rights? I would hope so. Grand Slam, motherfucker. The Baltimore Orioles' Cal Ripken broke Lou Gehrig's record for most consecutive games played in 1995 and retired from baseball in 2001. 
two years after Prodigy Classic was discontinued because its software could not account for the looming Y2K crisis. Cal Ripken remains alive. Garcia, however, was killed instantly as the bat caught him across the right temple. Rest in peace, Garcia, and rest in peace, Prodigy. That is our show for today. That was quite a narrative. That went in many directions. <laughs> our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to Pashos and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You cannot email us at hangup at prodigy.net, but we are maintaining email services at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out The Gist, the daily podcast starring our friend and collaborator and gamesmanship expert, Mike Pesca. You know Mike. You love Mike. You should listen to his daily interviews and riffs on the news and his spiels. You'll learn stuff. You'll be entertained. You'll have a shinier, fuller mane. Subscribe at slate.com slash the gist. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.